the ballets in the back, sweet singers in the front, cruising down the freeway in the hot, hot sun. Suddenly red blue lights flash us from behind. Loud voice booming, please step out onto the line. Ballet bridge words of comfort, singer just hides her eyes. Policeman taps the shades and sell a Chevy 69. How bizarre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And speaking of the chronological order of publication, ladies and gentlemen, with the review of The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, I have finished the mission statement of the Stephen King cast which I began when I started out in August of 2014 and began my reread with Carrie. It concludes now with the publication of The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. So um, don't worry. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to just say that and then cause a heart attack in all of you that think that it's, it's all over from this point. Um, I'll get to that later. But I just wanted to say that we have now caught up um, to the, the, the book in the chronological order of publication. And whew, whew, it feels like a huge weight is off my shoulders. I know that there's still some catch-up that I have to do. I know that I have to go and I, I need to read The Colorado Kid. I need to read uh, Blaze and there's some other short stories that I, I think that I need to touch. But um, but no, I mean, the, the bulk of the, the reread um, is done. And I... With the Bizarre of Bad Dreams, I, this was my Christmas present to myself, reading this one um, during Christmas uh, of 2015. It was just a fun reading experience. I loved cracking it open and um, and just and, and just reading it. And, you know, I mean, his short story collections, they, uh, uh, you know, they're sometimes hit or miss, but Bizarre of Bad Dreams, it's great. I really enjoyed reading it. Okay, guys, in uh, previous reviews of Stephen King's short stories, I reviewed a handful of, of those stories, but with The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, I will be uh, talking about some, you know, some briefly, but, you know, some in a little bit more detail, um, all of the stories that, that are collected. So that's that's going to be a first for a review of the, uh, the short story collections. But first, I wanted to i uh, read a couple listener emails, the first of which is from Bree, who writes, Hi, I've been listening to your podcast for the past month, and all I can say is, wow, seriously, your podcast is like an academic review of the works of Stephen King, who I started reading as a kid, probably officially buying my first used Stephen King book when I was in middle school. You discuss things and plot points I never thought of or acknowledged, and your calm voice is a great way to relax at the end of the day while pondering what it represents, the surprise ending of The Mist, etc., I hope to hear you do more reviews of the individual stories uh, in King's anthologies, especially the one titled Gray Matter. I think it involves the abusive alcoholic father that gets a bad batch of beer, as well as the creep show movies and the comic book slash gra graphic novel. Your show has also encouraged me to start reading against something that slowed down immensely after age 30, not sure why, and return to my own writing, which I've neglected. I bought the anniversary version of King's On Writing, as I think it will help me get more focused about my writing. 
Okay, I don't want to ramble, so I will end this email by saying that your podcast is without a doubt one of the best I've ever listened to, and I think you could do an amazing journal-level review of King's work. You're so talented in this topic. Keep up the amazing work, and please don't stop proving shows. Um, for some reason, two good horror comedy podcasts have stopped recording routinely this month, and it's really a bit sad. Your show helps all of King's fans kind of geek out about his work, which can be hard to do amongst those that don't understand King or his writing. Um, so that's, that's Brie, um, Gabrielle, uh, you know, so thanks for writing in. Um, and I, I definitely encourage you to continue, you know, writing, uh, yourself. I think that Stephen King definitely would. Um, and on writing is a great resource for that. So, um, yes, I, I probably will get back to some of the, the short stories and I am going to be planning on, uh, working on the, uh, the creep show and creep show two reviews. And so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read um, a review from Mikkel, who writes again. Um, I had read an earlier review, um, earlier um, email from Mikkel, and uh, he writes, You are still doing a man's job, sir, to misquote Gaff from Blade Runner once more. Um, I've been a constant listener since I last wrote in and have not been disappointed. Thank you for a remarkable podcast. In my last email, I touched upon my reservations towards the Dark Tower, and I've given a lot of thoughts since, especially when listening to the episodes regarding the particular books. I could write a lot about what I do and don't like about the books, and I'm trying to narrow it down to keep this mail reasonable short. So, guys, if you are listening and you haven't read the Dark Tower books, you might want to go ahead for a little bit um because we're gonna get into some spoilers the good i really like the gunslinger it promises a great adventure in a unique setting and i love the ending in that last book the bad most in between yeah it's a bit harsh i know and i'm sure it's mostly due to my expectations i read the books only a few years back after they were all published and from the comments on SK message boards, I was about to embark on a journey where everything in these and King's other books was carefully crafted to an elaborate mother of all stories. I expected a legendary tale where the writer had a plan, a grand design, but I felt that I got the opposite. In my view, the Dark Tower books is King dumping his consciousness down on paper without editorial critique. It seemed to me like a jam session by two boys playing with their action figures after watching a cocktail of the Nature Channel, a Sci-Fi Channel, a few Westerns, and Harry Potter. Oh, and then there's this bear. Yeah, but it's a giant bear, except it's not really a bear, but a robot. Also, I think the book suffers from another Stephen Kingism. The author having too good a time with the characters. Sometimes I feel that Stephen King enjoys conversing with his characters a little too much. <clears throat> which results in long scenes and dialogues that can, that can, at worst, alienate the reader. I was at times bored, and other times I felt excluded from the company of King and his friends having a good time. I think you, who read the novels as they came out, had a completely different experience. It's like the comment you had about the joy of waiting. Sometimes it matures the experience. So even though you had a tough, you had a tough longing for the next installment, you were the lucky ones, in my opinion. As I mentioned, my disappointment is probably due to the expectations I had, and I still enjoy the idea of King's Dark Tower project. Last, a question or speculation maybe for another time. In Back of Bones, as I recall, the protagonist has difficulties writing and publishes some stories that he had written in earlier exceptional productive years but never published until now. He is humored how no one noticed it, 
even though his style has changed. We all know about King's productivity, so, with your knowledge of his work, do you think that he's ever done that himself? And if you should pick one book, what do you think would most likely be an old work released much later? Again, thanks for a great podcast, Mikkel. That is a great question. Um, so, I mean, we know that Blaze um, was dusted and, and polished and, and Blaze was going to be the, the follow-up to, to Carrie, but they went with Salem's Lot instead. So that's certainly an example. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, 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 I've been thinking about this, and I, I personally can't think of, of, a, of a work that um, would be indicative of an earlier Stephen King uh, that's published later in his career. But if anyone out there has any thoughts, this is a great question that I think I need to, to call upon all the Stephen King fans out there to, to help me with. So write in to StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com to share your thoughts on the matter. And Mikkel, thanks again for writing in. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe that your your thoughts on um, on The Dark Tower are shared by many people out there, as it's still not one of Stephen King's popular um, entries, even though it, it is as beloved among some of his fans. Um, there are just as many fans who can't stand it. So, I mean, it's important to, to get your, your, your view out there as well. All right, guys, so uh, with The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, um, as he does with every short story collection, King begins with an introduction. And this introduction is a little less insightful than his others, but interesting because the introduction and the conclusion to the intro itself see King adopting a spooky storyteller persona, something he rarely does, despite his reputation as the master of horror. In it, he suggests that the stories before us are contained within a bazaar. And he takes on the role that Leland Gaunt and George Elvid had before him, that of the peddler. And so our first story is Mile 81. Here's the Wikipedia summary. At Mile 81 on the main turnpike is a boarded-up rest stop, a place where high school kids drink and get in trouble. Pete Simmons snakes away, sne- sneaks away from his older brother and arrives there, where he finds a bottle of vodka and pornographic magazines. He drinks enough to pass out. A mud-covered station wagon, which is strange because there had not been any rain in New England for over a week, veers into the Mile 81 rest area, ignoring the sign that says, Closed, no services. The driver's door opens, but nobody gets out. Doug Clayton, an insurance man from Bangor, is driving his Prius to a conference in Portland. On the back seat are his briefcase and suitcase, and in the passenger bucket is a King James Bible, what Doug calls the ultimate insurance manual but it's not going to save Doug when he decides to be the good Samaritan and help the guy in the broken-down wagon. He pulls up behind it, puts on his four ways, and notices that the wagon has no plates. He is then eaten by the wagon. In the version in The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, released in 2015, several more characters get eaten by the station wagon, including a lesbian horse owner and the parents of two young kids. Analysis. King once again establishes the world of childhood and the danger... Uh, that comes when the world of children bumps against the supernatural. In this case, the evil car. King spends some time exploring the adventures of the child before switching gears, literally, as we are introduced to the station wagon. King has described evil cars in Christine, Low Men in Yellow Coats, from a Buick 8, 
And though the nature of the evil car is a bit derivative at this point, he finds new ways to explore its wrongness, as we see on page 21. Doug reached for the door handle, then thought better of it, and stooped to peer through the opening. What he saw was dismaying. The bench seat was covered with mud, so was the dashboard and the steering wheel. Dark goo dripped from the old-fashioned knobs of the radio, and on the wheel were prints that didn't look exactly as if hands had made them. The palm prints were awfully big for one thing, but the finger marks were as narrow as pencils. Um, and it continues, uh, there was a moment to register an ungodly stink and then his left hand exploded into pain so great it seemed to leap through his entire body trailing fire and filling all of his hollow spaces with agony doug didn't couldn't scream his throat locked shut with the sudden shock of it he looked down and saw that the door handle appeared to have impaled the palm of his, the pad of his palm his fingers were barely there he could only see the stubs just below the last knuckles where the back of his hand started the rest had somehow been swallowed by the door as Doug watched, the third finger broke. His wedding ring fell off and clinked to the pavement. He could feel something, oh, dear God and dear Jesus, something like teeth. They were chewing. The car was eating his hand. It's a fun story where the victims line up for the feast one by one. Has anyone seen the movie The Relic? It's not very good. The, the book that's based on is great, though, but the movie is nothing like the book. Um, in it, it, it doesn't even star the main character. Um, but the, the reason that I bring it up is because there's a scene that I remember laughing at in the theater. A SWAT team lowers themselves into the museum only to get picked off by the monster one by one. It's buffoonish. It's unintentionally hilarious. But here, King is at least having fun with one victim lining up after the other after the other. And the ending is both absurd and brilliant. Of course the monster is defeated with a child's magnifying glass. It doesn't make any sense, but why should it? Nothing about this story makes sense, but it's so much fun. It's a great way to start the collection, and it really makes you wonder what the original story must have been like. Um, and, and what I'm talking about is that um, King had originally um, written the uh, Mile 81 and then lost it and then rewrote it later as, as as an older man. So I would love for King to find the original copy and then publish these two versions side by side. How different or similar would they be? I would really love to see that. So Stephen Kingisms, we have the evil car, duh. And Easter eggs, Pete is reading Lock and Key. Lock and Key is the comic book written by Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. Second story is Premium Harmony. While en route to Walmart for grass seed, Ray and Mary Burkett, with their dog Business in the back seat, fight about the state of their lawn, his smoking and her obesity. Mary demands that they stop at a convenience store in order to purchase a purple kickball for their niece's birthday, and while in there, she suffers a heart attack and immediately dies. Her husband, Ray, is fetched from the car by a store employee. The emergency medical technicians arrive, pronounce her dead, and remove her body. Ray remains with the store employees, and customers, recounting Mary's county fair awards for her quilting. After nearly two hours have passed, so he returns to his car where business has died from hypothermia with the remnants of a snowball Ray had fed him earlier still in his whiskers. This causes in Ray a simultaneous welling up of great sadness and amusement. 
The story is written in a third-person limited narrative and reveals a number of Ray's more egocentric thoughts throughout the story's events, such as being disturbed at the similarity between the manager's attempts at mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and French kissing, the thought that a bystander might be giving him a mercy fuck, and as the story closes, the thought that he can now smoke whatever, whenever, and wherever he likes. So analysis. It's just ugly. It's an ugly, ugly, mean little story. It's well-written. It doesn't take up too much space. But it's just definitely not a pleasant read. I mean, not only does his wife die, but when he gets back to his car, his dog is dead too. It's just a quick, brutal little story. And in terms of Easter eggs, we get to see Castle Rock for a split second. Okay, next story is Batman and Robin have an altercation. Um, there's no Wikipedia entry that I can read, but the short of it is that it's just about a father and son, the father and Alzheimer's patient. It's a fun little story with a great title. King smushes together three things that you wouldn't otherwise think of. Road rage, Alzheimer's, and pop culture. And in the end, after the son is getting beaten by a redneck because of the road rage, the father, Batman, saves the day by doing the most un-Batman thing to do, stabbing the other driver in the neck. Other than that, it's Batman saving Robin. So far, of the three short stories, only one has been horror. The second was a major bummer. And this is a medley of, excuse me, <coughs> Captain Trips is back. This is a medley of comedy, tragedy, and character exploration. The next story is The Dune from Wikipedia. The Dune is set in Florida and focuses on a retired Florida Supreme Court judge named Harvey Beecher and his lifelong obsession with a mysterious sand dune on an unnamed island a short distance off the Gulf coastline of his family's property. For some obscure reason, since he was a child and first ventured onto the island looking for supposed buried treasure, he has seen the names of people who are going to die within a month written in the sand. The main plot focuses on his most recent visit to the dune and the grim recollection of his lifelong experiences with it, as well as the revelation that the name he found written there to his lawyer, Anthony Wayland. So, analysis. I mean, this story, it's its all premise with little plot. I mean, finding names written in the sand of a small Gulf island is a great concept, and King doesn't really do much with it. You know, it, it just all leads to the punchline of the ending um, with the judge revealing that it wasn't his name uh, in the sand. Next story up. The Bad Little Kid. Now this story, guys. This story. This is an all-timer right here. This is the one that I was intrigued by as I headed into the collection. First of all, I love the framing device. The fact that the story revolves around a child murderer throws a large question mark on the story itself. But of course, there's never really any question as to whether or not the little bad kid is real. Of course he's real. This short story reads like vintage Stephen King. The Bad Little Kid is a wonderful monster that ranks right up there with the best of them. There's no reason why he torments George. He just does. We never know what it really is. It's clearly supernatural, but it's vulnerable. When George chases after it, it's really afraid. It's such a nice touch. It adds that little wrinkle in the story that makes it pop just right. So in terms of Stephen Kingisms, um, we have Death by Car Crash. Uh, The narrator... uh, George's childhood girlfriend is is crushed by uh, a car. Uh, Next up, we have um, A Death. Um, Now, this is a quick little western, um, like the title says, of death. 
throughout the story, you're never sure if the alleged murderer did it. In fact, he denies it so believably, you're pretty convinced that he's innocent. But that's why the end works as well as it does. It's not a huge story. Just a small examination on truth and lies and the reality that we've built around us. One death and the subsequent fallout can tear that reality down. Next is not a story but a poem, Bone Church, about ghost elephants. It's just fun. Ghost elephants, that's all I'm going to say. Morality. Okay, uh, It has a longer uh, Wikipedia entry, and morality is a largely a character study concerning a married couple, Chad and Nora Callahan, who are suffering from financial difficulties brought on by a lack of employment and low-paying jobs. While both are seemingly frustrated with the influx of monthly bills and other expenses, they remain largely optimistic about future solutions to solve their money woes. Chad hopes to supplement their income by writing a book based on his experiences as a substitute teacher, while Nora, a nurse, works full-time for a retired reverend named George Winston, who is partially paralyzed and uses a wheelchair after suffering from a stroke. Nora's time spent with Reverend Winston is largely uneventful, consisting mostly to physical therapy and day-to-day -day care, until one day Winston propositions Nora with a solution to her monetary problems. Being a reverend, Winston states that he has largely lived his life without sin, though he also states he has not gone completely without it, and seeks to experience one major sin before he passes away. However, given his current condition, he was unable to leave his house, making committing any worthwhile sin impossible without outside aid. This is where Nora comes in. According to Winston, who states that he intends to commit a sin vicariously through Nora's actions, therefore commits sin by proxy, and effectively doubles his sin quotient in the eyes of God. Winston makes it clear that for Nora's help, the assumption of risk in this deed, he will pay her a total of $200,000 should she accept his offer. Initially, after Winston reveals what the sin involves, Nora is shocked and appalled at the desires of the old man, assuming that he must be insane. However, after discussing the pros and cons of the offer with Chad and reasoning that with the money they would be able to pay off all their debts and move to New England, Nora agrees to go through with the proposal. After committing the act with Chad, Nora returns to Winston with a videotape as evidence of going through with the plan. While reviewing the tape, it's revealed that the sin Winston chose to commit instead of Nora going, was going up to a small child in the park in the middle of the day and punching him in the face very hard, causing the child to apparently suffer a bloody nose. <laughs> Seemingly satisfied with the outcome of Nora's actions, Winston agrees to pay her the money and concedes that Nora will no longer wish to work for him now that she has seen his true face. Nora states that she finds the whole situation repulsive and goes home wondering why Winston would ever want to commit such a senseless act and whether or not the police will ever find out about it. Shortly after Nora stops working for Reverend Winston, she learns from his housekeeper, Mrs. Granger, that Winston apparently died from kidney failure, though Mrs. Granger confides in Nora that Winston's body was found next to an empty bottle of pills, strongly implied that he had committed suicide after going through with this plan. This leads Nora to wonder about the fate of the videotape she gave Winston and whether or not it will be uncovered after his death. As time passes after the business with Winston, Chad and Nora are racked with guilt over their complacence with the sin, so much so that their previously optimistic mindsets grow darker and more pessimistic as their fear of people discovering their part in Winston's deed increases. Chad starts drinking more often and Nora commits adultery with two different men and develops a tendency for um, masochistic 
satisfaction during intercourse. This eventually leads to the dissolution of their marriage, with Chad blaming the failure and poor quality of his book on guilt and Nora's lack of faith in his talent writing, writing talent. After getting divorced, Nora is seemingly happy to be rid of Chad and begins working full-time at a local hospital. However, on the way home from work one day, Nora notices an old book in a used bookstore which she had previously seen in Reverend Winston's study called The Basis of Morality. After taking it home and spending much of the following summer and fall reading through it, Nora sadly concludes that there is little or nothing in the book that she didn't already know. For analysis, I mean, this is an intriguing entry. King paints the desperation of Chad and Nora so vividly, um, you know, the, the, the temptation that's presided here, it's, it's a cool drink of water on a hot day. For a second, I think that this we all think this is going to turn into King's version of an indecent proposal, and to some extent it is, but it isn't as clear-cut as that movie. As Chad and Nora debate whether or not to agree to the sin, we can't help but wonder what the sin is. Sure, the sin is relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but that opens up the debate posed upon us by the title itself. Morality. Are there truly any shades of gray, or is, something simply, or is everything simply black and white? Is there no such thing as little sin? I mean, look what happens when they gave in. They give in to the baser parts of themselves, and unsurprisingly, their marriage falls apart. So Stephen Kingisms, teachers. We have seen teachers in many of Stephen King's works before. Number, so the next story is Afterlife. Of all the stories contained within this collection, this is the one that's most likely to give me a nightmare. The idea that there is an afterlife and that the afterlife sucks is terrifying. Not that it's horrible or punishing, just boring and uninspired makes life itself a cosmic joke. The exchange between afterlife agent Harris and recently departed Soul Andrews is fascinating and depressing. He's not a bad man, but he's not a great one either. And his only two options are to live his life over again, exactly the same way, or to choose oblivion. Yikes. I mean, this is a loaded story which could work very well in a play. And in it, King even gives us an origin for deja vu, which is what happens when we recognize someone from a previous go-around. Easter eggs. Hemingford home. Uh, Bill is from the same town as Mother Abigail from The Stand and Ben Hans the adult Ben Hanscom from It. Next up, we have Yur, or You Are. Wesley Smith. An English teacher at a college in Kentucky wants to go new school and buys a Kindle. Due to a minor mistake in his credit card number, he is sent a pink Kindle, even though at the time Kindles were always white. Slowly he realizes that this edition was meant for another Wesley Smith in a parallel universe. Smith's Kindle has a particular function called UR, or YUR, that can search multiple universes for data. Uh, Smith finds four new books by Ernest Hemingway, books he wrote in an alternate dimension where he lived for three more years. Wesley also discovers yet another function concerning newspapers that were published in an alternate universe. Smith tells a friend and a student about the Kindle. The three try to connect to a newspaper from an alternate reality, but find to their horror that no papers are published that day. They learn that this is that in this alternate reality, the world ended when the Cuban Missile Crisis escalated into nuclear war. Using the UR function on his Kindle, Smith also discovers that a busload of students will be killed by a drunk driver in less than three days. He seeks out to help track down the drunk driver and keep her from killing the students. He's successful, although he realizes no one other than his two friends will know. 
However, he's wrong. When he gets back from his success, he finds that three that the low men in yellow coats are waiting for him, ready to punish him from using the forbidden function of the Kindle. He argues that perhaps his change was meant to happen. How else could he have gotten the Kindle otherwise? His argument does not fully sway the low men, but they feel it's simply best to simply keep it from happening again by confiscating the Kindle, leaving Wesley alone to ponder the enormity of a world he thought he understood. Analysis. Um, just so everyone knows, uh, the cat is out of the bag when it comes to this short story, which has been floating, uh, you know, for around for a few years now. Um, so understand that if you haven't read it and wanted to go in cold and don't want to be spoiled on its connections to other Stephen King books, then fast forward to the next short story review. Um, the introduction is hilarious. Uh, King describes the ins and outs of a mediocre college. As I say this, it sounds awful, um, but really, he's establishing the tone and the setting immediately. But the tone, guys, the tone is funny. Um, the story is funny. I mean, just look at his depiction of Ellen, the basketball coach, on page um, 212. Um, but he guessed he wasn't. He guessed he was just sort of mediocre. It wasn't his less-than-athletic sexual ability that ended their relationship, however. It was the fact that Ellen was a vegan who ate tofurkey for Thanksgiving. It wasn't the fact that she would sometimes lie in bed after lovemaking, talking about pick-and-rolls, give-and-goes, and the inability of Shauna Decent to learn something Ellen called the old garden gate. In fact, some of these monologues sometimes put Wesley into his deepest, sweetest, and most refreshing sleeps. He thought it was the calmness of her voice, so different from the often profane shrieks of encouragement she let out while they were making love. Her love shrieks were eerily similar to the ones she uttered during games, running up and down the sidelines like a hare, exhorting her girls to pass the ball and drive the paint. Wesley had even heard one of the, her sideline screams, Go for the hole! in the bedroom from time to time. Um... And we get to know Wesley very well in a short amount of time. The fact that he's buying a candle to spite his ex-lover screams the type of man he is. That purchasing a reading device is the biggest middle finger he can give to the world. Once he begins playing with the strangely pink Kindle, he discovers the feature whose image should send King fans flying out of their seats. Again, spoilers for anyone still listening. The fact that the text is described as red should start to tip off. But a second later, the logo that appears on his screen is a black tower. But for all of us, we know that it isn't just any old tower. It's the Dark Tower. And what a fun entry into the world of the Dark Tower mythos. An e-reader with access to stories from parallel worlds? That's so much fun. King gives us another story of trying to change the course of time, reminiscent of 1122-63, and after they succeed in stopping the bus from crashing, West comes home to find a car in his spot. The car itself should tip off Dark Tower fans. <coughs> there was a car in the spot where he usually left the Malibu when he didn't leave it in parking lot A at the college. Wesley could have parked behind it, but chose the other side of the street and said, something about the car made him uneasy. It was a Cadillac, and the glow of the arc sodium beneath which it was parked, it seemed too bright. The red paint almost seemed to yell, Here I am! Do you like me? Wesley didn't, nor did he like the tinted windows or the oversized gangsta hubcaps with their gold Cadillac emblems. It looked like a drug dealer's car. 
Um, and then to confirm a page later, we're starting to get some, um, we're starting to get an inkling of where this is going. Then a page later, there were two of them. One was young and one was old. The old ones sat on a sofa where Wesley and Ellen Silverman had once seduced each other to their mutual enjoyment, nay, ecstasy. The young ones sat in Wesley's favorite chair, the one he always ended up in the, when the night was late, the leftover cheesecake tasty, the book interesting, and the light from the standing lamp just right. They both wore long, mustard-colored coats, the kind that are called dusters, and Wesley understood, without knowing how he understood, that the coats were alive. He also understood that the men wearing them were not men at all. Their faces kept changing, and what lay just beneath the skin was reptilian, or bird-like, or both. On their lapels, where lawmen in a western movie would have worn badges, both wore buttons wearing a red eye. Wesley thought these two were alive. The eyes were watching him. The low men! The canned toy! How exciting! And they even mentioned the Dark Tower. The low men here, despite wearing the masks we've seen in the Dark Tower, despite being the monsters we remember and wearing the Crimson King's eye, are not functioning like the low men we remember. In Low Men in Yellow Coats in the Dark Tower series, they are actively working to destroy the tower. Here, however, they're trying to save it. I don't know what the point is, but it seems out of character to me. As much as I love the Dark Tower connections here, I wonder if the low men should have been replaced by the green card men from 1122-63 or members of the Tet Corporation. But still, great shout out to the, the larger work of the Dark Tower. Herman Wauk is still alive. Old friends Brenda and Jasmine set off on a road trip back to their shared hometown in a rented Chevy Express after Brenda wins $2,700 on a pick three lottery. They bring along Brenda's and Jasmine's young children, seven in all. Meanwhile, two aging poets, who are also former lovers, on their way to a paid joint appearance at the University of Maine, stop at a rest area to have lunch together. Soon their lives will come crashing together in an unforeseen way. Analysis. This one's a bummer. I mean, there's not much to say about it. And there is, but I'm not going to spend long on it because it just it just bummed me out. It's just, it's just it's a depressing story. Under the weather, Brad Franklin wakes up from a nightmare. His wife Ellen is asleep beside him in bed. She isn't feeling well after a recent bout of bronchitis. Brad takes Lady, their dog, for a walk. As he leaves the building, he learns from the doorman that the exterminators are coming in the afternoon to check on a foul odor that's expected to come from a dead rat in a neighboring apartment. Um, after taking Lady back to his apartment and leaving his wife a note, Brad departs for his job at an advertising agency, leaving Ellen asleep in the bed. At work, he recalls past times with his wife, both happy and not so happy, Ellen helping him on his first breakthrough ad, the couple learning that she could not conceive a child, which in a way is a blessing given the fact that she has a heart condition that could have been adversely affected by the strain of carrying a child, a trip to Nassau. It was on the plane ride to Nassau that Brad recalls having a bad scare in which for a brief moment he thought that his napping wife looked dead. After she awoke and he told her about his fear, she made a joke that if he had died, if she had died, he probably would have shipped her body back to New York and married a Bahama mama. In response, he told her that if she had really been dead, he would have used his imagination to keep her alive and simply refused to accept that she was dead. 
Brad receives a call from the building superintendent, who tells Brad that they now believe that the foul odor is in fact coming from Brad's apartment. The super then makes a pointed comment about how nobody has seen Ellen in over a week. Brad surmises that the super believes that he has killed his wife and agrees to meet her in the lobby, after which they will go to the apartment together to check the source of the odor. Brad immediately leaves for work and returns to his apartment building, where he uses a key previously given, in, given to him by the doorman to enter through a service entrance, thereby passing the lobby and the super. In his apartment, he sees Lady skulking from the bedroom where his wife is presumably still asleep. The dog is licking her chops. In the bedroom, Brad finds that Ellen's hand, which is hanging over the bed, has been chewed on by Lady, leaving only a few strips of flesh. He decides to use his imagination to deny this, and tucks the hand back under the covers. He waves a f away few of the flies, figuring that they must be attracted to whatever that is creating the foul odor. He asks Ellen if she would like something to drink or eat. When she says nothing, he asks her if she remembers her their trip to the Bahamas. When she says nothing, he asks her if she doesn't want to get up and walk around a little. Still, she says nothing. He then tells her that it's fine, that she can sleep a little while longer, and that he will sit beside her. Analysis. What's fun about this... Well, no, nothing's, nothing's fun about this. Um, it's, it's a sad story, but um, I do like that King kicks off with a nightmare. Not one of the, the, the overly dramatic, prophetic, symbolic Stephen King nightmares, but, you know, the age-old something under the bed. You know, from there, he teases us the, the plain nightmare filled with dream logic, that something bad will happen if our main character looks into the face of the passenger next to him. As we head towards the end, King teases the death of Brad's wife, who he'd once thought was dead while on the plane ride to the Bahamas. This, combined with the plane dream, um, the fact that Ellen is underweather and the smell coming from the apartment all points to signs reading dead wife. Now, there's no last-minute reveal. I mean, it's exactly what's been building towards. But it isn't meant to be terrifying horrific. It's just really sad. This isn't a man who murdered his wife and is trying to hide the body. He's a man who lost her because of sickness and refuses to acknowledge that she's dead. Easter eggs. Nozala. Um, this is the uh, famous um, <clears throat> uh, soda that we see a lot in, in Stephen King's works um, that, that point out that we are in an alternate reality. Up next, we have Blockade Billy. The book is told through a framing device where an old man in a retirement home, George Granny Grantham, is telling a story of Stephen King. Granny tells of a season in the 1950s when he was the third base coach for the now-defunct MLB team, the New Jersey Titans. When the team loses both of their catchers days before the start of the season, they are forced to request a minor league player at the last-minute replacement. The replacement turns out to be a young man named William Billy Blakely. Although Billy seems to be feeble-minded and highly susceptible to suggestion, he turns out to be a phenomenal player. He becomes especially well-known for his incredible stopping power at home plate, earning him the nickname Blockade Billy among fans. He quickly becomes endeared to the team, especially to star pitcher Danny Dusen, a usually arrogant, self-centered man who adopts Billy as his good luck charm. Granny, however, becomes suspicious of Billy when a player who was badly injured during a tag-out accuses him of intentionally slicing his ankle. Although Billy claims innocence, and there is no evidence to support the accusation, Granny is convinced that Billy is lying. As the season goes on, Billy's popularity continues to grow. One day, however, Granny arrives before a game to find the team's manager in a state of panic. Refusing to divulge what is wrong, he asks Granny to cover him as manager, only stating that the team deserves one last game together. 
During the following game, High Wenders, an umpire with an antagonistic relationship to the team, makes a bad call, resulting in Granny being thrown out of the game when he argues against it and for cries to kill the ump to come from, to come from the crowd. Granny returns to the locker room to find the team manager with several police officers. They explain that Billy was an imposter. His real name is Eugene Cat... Tassanis, an orphan that worked at the Blakely farm. The real William Blakely had seemingly been murdered by Eugene alongside his parents several months back. Granny reflects on his own speculations of the situation, guessing that Eugene had been abused by the Blakeleys and that the abuse grew worse as the real William, a failing minor league player, became consumed by jealousy over Eugene's superior skills. Eventually, the abuse became too much, causing Eugene to murder the family. When the call came in requesting Billy as an emergency replacement for the Titans, Eugene decided to take Billy's identity and report to the team in his place. Granny is asked to send Eugene to the police station to be arrested. Despite Granny's attempt to create a convincing pretense for sending him to the locker room, Eugene senses that something is wrong and rather than going straight there, tracks down Wenders. Following the crowd's demands to kill the umpire, he slashes Wenders' throat with his personalized weapon, a spring-loaded razor blade hidden beneath the bandage before surrendering to the police. Granny goes on to describe the misfortunes the team suffered afterwards and finishes by reflecting that despite their adoption of Billy as a good luck charm, he instead served as a black hole of luck, sucking it away from the rest of the team. I'm not a baseball fan, uh, but we all know that King is. So it was just a matter of time before he launched into a full-blown story about baseball, and he gives us Blockade Billy. It's fun that he places himself into it, as if he's giving the origin for the story itself. It's fun, with a nice little twist that Blockade Billy is insane, and a murderer to boot. In the conclusion, King gives the examination on the importance of baseball, of baseball fandom, how it connects each of us to something bigger than, than ourselves. Mr. Yummy. Analysis. So, when judging something, I always try to critique a work um, weighed against the author's intent. Does it work is a fine question, but does it work to the best of the author's vision is a better one. It allows me to commend works that I don't like and allows me to like things that I can't say are good. Now with this, this is an example where King's introduction to the story hurts it. In the introduction, he describes the all-consuming lust of youth and how he wanted to explore it through a lens of a gay point of view. However, what he gives us is older men about to die in an old folks home, ruminating on sex drives of much younger men gives the story a cold, detached perspective when it should be passionate and powerful. There's a lot to be written on this subject, with a lot of ways to tackle it. King has long written of addiction. Sex in youth is a form of addiction. Even if you aren't engaged in it, you're certainly thinking about it constantly. That's an angle he could have taken. He wanted to write about the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. He could have given us an AIDS boogeyman, or the lust of a vampire in that decade. Syntactically, he could have written of the overwhelming urge of the sex drive by giving us a sloppy run-on sentence where order has been replaced by stream of consciousness and overpowering feelings. Instead, we get a distant and removed clinical look at homosexuality, AIDS, and the sex drive from the elderly who are so far removed from the glory days that they might as well be aliens trying to figure out human emotion. So it's not really good. Uh, Easter eggs. Hemingford Home. 
Ollie says that the watch he gave Dave was dropped into a well by his father in Hemingford Home, a, uh, a town which we have seen in many Stephen King stories, uh, most famously in The Stand and in It. Um, Tommy, um, my review of Tommy here. This is a poem that I believe is a nice companion piece to Hearts to the Hearts in Atlantis collection. Now, if this replaced Blind Willie, I wouldn't complain. And you'd have to listen to my review of uh, Hearts in Atlantis to, to get the full um, context of that comment. Okay, guys, next up I have The Little Greed God of Agony. And yikes. King gives us the introduction, linking the origin back to the pain caused by his 1999 accident. And then he gives us the pain, which is great, on page 374. He told them about awakening in a cage of metal and mesh. There were steel gantries called external fixators on both legs and one arm to immobilize joints that had been repaired with about 100 steel pins. Actually, 17. Cat had seen the x-rays. The fixators were anchored in the outraged and splintered femurs, tibia, fibula, humerus, radius, ulna. His back was encased in a kind of chainmail girdle that went from his hips to the nape of his neck. He talked about sleepless nights that seemed to go on not for hours but for years. He talked about the crushing headaches. He told them about how even wiggling his toes caused pain all the way up to his jaw and the shrieking agony that bit into his legs when the doctors insisted that he move them fixators and all so he wouldn't entirely lose their function he told him about the bed sores and how he bit back howls of hurt and outrage when the nurses attempted to roll him on his side so the sores could be flushed out what begins is an examination what begins as an examination of pain gives way to a tense and thrilling conflict between science and faith between Kat, the physical therapist who is disgusted at her employer's lack of motivation and rehabilitation, and the Reverend Rideout, who is going to take away Newsom's paint through supernatural means. So when Kat interrupts and lays into Newsom, it's because she's our point-of-view character, and you agree with her. Until Rideout begins to speak and touches upon truths that we ignored during our reading, truths I'm sure King encountered during his rehab, of the physical therapists who can't sympathize with their patient's pain. Once Rideout begins to make his point, I'm not sure where the story will go. Is he a sham or the real deal is the question we ask ourselves as we head into the exorcism, and I'm happy to report that he's the real deal. And King gives us an old-school, gathered-around-the-deathbed, thunder-and-lightning gothic scene with a monster crawling out of a man's throat on page 392. Um, Newsom's jaw had dropped all the way to his breastbone. The lower half of his face disappeared into a mighty yawn. Cat heard... Uh, temporal mandibular tendons creak as knee tendons did during strenuous physical therapy, a sound like dirty hinges. The lights in the room stuttered on and off, then on again. In the darkness behind Newsom's teeth, a bladder-like thing rose. It was pulsing. There was a rending, splintering crash as the window suddenly across the room shattered. Coffee cups fell to the floor and broke. Suddenly there was a branch in the room with them. The lights went out. The generator started back up again. No burp this time, but a steady roar. When the lights came back, Rideout was lying on the bed with Newsom, his arms flung out and his face planted on the wet patch in the sheet. Something was oozing from Newsom's gaping mouth, his teeth dragging grooves in his shapeless body, which was strippled with stubby green spikes. 
I mean, the end of the story is so much fun. The little green god of agony is loathsome and dangerous, and King ends it one second after we think the conflict is over, and ends with the suggestion, that you can probably guess, once Rideout calls out Cat for her lack of sympathy, that she will be infected by the little green god of agony and forced to endure the pain, thereby turning the story into a morality play. Very fun. I enjoyed it a lot. The bus is another world. When people complain about Stephen King, that he's too blood and guts or creepy, I just don't get it. I mean, this short story is such a well-conceived joke that you have to admire its construction. It's so short, so when the main character is gazing through his taxicab windshield into the window of a bus right next to him, you think that King is simply making an effective point on uh, the worlds we trap ourselves in. When you stop to think about how often we segregate ourselves from the rest of the world in our vehicles, this thought is very profound. So there's a moment I think he tricks us into thinking that he's simply giving us a nice little examination in life when the woman character that he's looking at gets her throat slashed. I can't help but think that King cackled as he did this, not because it's evil, but because it's such an unexpected but completely expected turn of events. Obits. This is a fun, mean little story. It has everything going for it. A TMZ-like tabloid, a bottom feeder as a protagonist who not only discovers that he has the ability to kill people by writing their obituaries, but exploits it. After the second death, um, we should begin to be worried for Katie, his confident an object of affection. It's hard not to imagine him using his nefarious powers, um, sorry, his nefarious powers for even more nefarious purposes. However, King immediately reads our minds and does not turn Katie into a potential victim of her supernaturally powered monster, but turns our supernaturally powered monster into a pet whose leash becomes held by Katie. It's a nice twist, and Mike winds up becoming a rather sympathetic character who becomes the gun that's held by others to shoot. In a short amount of time, King comments upon journalism today, our superficialism, sensationalism, and our detachment. What he began back in the dead zone with the inside view, he continues here in a more modern context with Neon Circus. He critiques it, critiques us for our obsession with lowering ourselves to reading about gossip and speculation, and it's a critique that will never get old. Stephen Kingisms, character's named Michael Anderson. This is our narrator, as well as the main character from Storm of the Century. Number two, the writer. Michael Anderson might only write obits, but he's still a writer. Uh, three, a prisoner choking on a bar of soap while in prison. This was seen in an earlier story in this collection, particularly in Blockade Billy. And a character being able to murder using supernatural powers. Dinky Earnshaw could do it in Everything's Eventual, and Edgar Fremantle found that he could do it with his phantom limb and Duma Key. Up next, we have Drunken Fireworks. Um, the introductions to these stories are a lot of fun, um, but the introduction to Drunken Fireworks can't be topped. And we have one on page 447. Um, here's an anecdote too good to not share. I've been telling it at public appearances for a few years now. Uh, my wife does the major shopping for us. She says that there'd never be a vegetable in the house otherwise, but she sometimes sends me on emergency errands. So I was in the local supermarket one afternoon on a mission to find batteries in a non-stick fry pan. 
I meandered my way up to the housewares aisles, having already stopped for a few other absolute necessities. Cinnamon buns and potato chips. A woman came around the far end, riding one of those motorized carts. She was a Florida snowbird archetyped, about 80, perm to perfection, and darkly tanned as a Cardov Cardovian shoe. She looked at me, looked away, then did a double take. I know you, she said. You're Stephen King. You write those scary stories. That's all right. Some people like them. But not me. I like uplifting stories, like that Shawshank Redemption. I wrote that too, I said. No, you didn't, she said, and went on her way. <laughs> ah, I mean, that's awesome. I, it's just such a great, great introduction. Um, but with uh, Drunken Fireworks, right away, I'm excited. I mean, it starts with the police report taken by our old friend Andy Clutterbuck, who is now the new police chief, police chief of Castle Rock which has somehow become the markings against the doorframe to chronicle the passing of time in Stephen King's chronology. When he began way back when, we first met George Bannerman in the pages of the Dead Zone, who was then murdered by Cujo, giving us Alan Pangborn in the dark half in Needful Things. In the years that followed, King gave us glimpses of Norris Ridgwick's promotion to the job in the pages of Bag of Bones and Lisey's story. Now it's Andy Clutterbuck's turn, and I hope that he's able to retire like the two previous chiefs and not wind up like the first constable we met. As for the story itself, it's hilarious. And you know by now that I can be critical of King's humor when he forces his characters to laugh at other characters' unfunny jokes, but the steady buildup of the premise of the story is consistently funny. The idea of locals in a fireworks arm race against the rich out-of-towners across the lake is a great concept that builds and builds to a genuinely funny ending with an out-of-control musical flying saucer firework uh, display. It's really good, guys, and it's actually probably one of his best short stories of all time. In terms of Easter eggs, we have Andy Clutterbuck that I've already talked about. We have Castle Rock. Um which I've already talked about, and TR-90 and Chester's Mills, two nearby towns that we've seen in other Stephen King stories. Uh, that's mentioned as well. And lastly, we have Summer Thunder. Um, King has written of the end of the world on more than a few occasions. The stand, cell, the mist, the end of the whole mess. But this one is probably the saddest and the most personal. There's no romanticism to it. It's just a sad, quick death of a couple characters who just don't stand a chance. There's no greater evil to beat. There's no stand to be taken. It's not even a survival story. It's just about living out the last few days that remain before the things that you can't control overpower you. And that's the Bizarre Bad Dreams, guys. All in all, it's a really good collection and I'm very happy to have read it. And with that, we're done with the chronological order of publication reread. So typically at this time, guys, I say, you know, stay tuned for next week where I'll review and I talk about what's next. But I don't know what I'm going to be doing for next week. So I will just say that's something. I'll do something for next week. I just don't know what it is yet. Um, all right, everyone. So um, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next week for something. Where M O O N spells Stephen King cast. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. It's making me crazy. It's making me crazy. Every time I look around. Every 
Every time I look around, it's in my face.